Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. We've been in a series entitled um, The Long Way Home. And there are several phrases I've wanted you to try to understand because they're very biblical phrases. There's a lot wrapped up into some of these phrases. It used to be in our society that these were common um, phrases that would have been recognized. And today, because of, to be honest, the, the biblical illiteracy we find ourselves in, increasingly that's not been the case. And so we talked at the beginning about bricks without straw, which was an illustration of the, the Jewish people having to um, create more with less resources. And how appropriate is that for our time period, as we're having to work harder with less resources to achieve the same results. So bricks without straw. We talked about how they were having God's presence as a pillar of cloud by the day and a pillar of, uh, of uh, fire by night and about his presence. Talked a little bit about the water from the rock as they're thirsty and in need, that Moses strikes the rock once, and that's important that he struck it once. We'll talk about that later. But the water from the rock that came forward, and Christ kind of alludes to that in the New Testament about him providing that living water for us and him being that rock. Today, as we continue the progression of the narrative into the 17th and continuing into the 17th uh, chapter, um, I want to put in front of you the idea of lifting up the arms Lifting up the arms, coming alongside and lifting up the arms of someone. Today's message is entitled, The Struggle. To struggle means to get free of restraint or to resist attack. The struggle. So, we find the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 17. Verses 8 and 9 says, While the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. And Moses commanded Joshua. First time we see Joshua pop up. Very important figure. But this is first introduction to us. And Moses says, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow I'll stand on the top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. Now, when the Israelites first started off, we said how God had them take a route that avoided battle, avoided conflict. They weren't quite ready for that. But in this moment of time, there's no longer any avoidance. There are some conflict that we can avoid and some we can't. If we want to grow, conflict is going to be inevitable. It's part of the ways that we're shaped how we respond to it, and how we deal with it. And so now these people have come upon them, and um, they have to deal with the very first battle that they've ever fought. Before that, God fought for them and wiped out the Egyptians. But this one, they need to fight. So these army of slaves, for the first time, have to fight a military battle. Now, who are they fighting? They're fighting the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were a very fierce desert tribe that liked to acquire their wealth by taking it from other people. Um, they would attack caravans and different groups that were weaker than them and accumulate what they had, whether it was in the form of resources or 
people, women, etc. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 and 18, there's a little bit of a retrospect here saying, never forget what the Amalekites did to you, referring to what we're hearing now in Exodus about, did to you as you came from Egypt. They attacked you when you were exhausted and weary, and they struck down those who were straggling behind. They hit you when, they were, when you were weak and struggling, and they struck down those who were straggling behind. This tells us what's going on here in Exodus. The children of Israel would have been spread out in a long line of travel and journey. And in that kind of a situation, you usually had your fighters up front, and you had in the back area here uh, what was referred to as the baggage, which would be resources and material, uh, any wealth that would be there. Also, women and children would also be there, and the older people. And so what this thing tells us in Deuteronomy is, is that they're strung out, strung out on their journey that the Amalekites would swoop in and raid the back end. They picked off the stragglers, the old people that couldn't keep up, the tired people, the weak. They'd pick them off. They were going for the baggage. They were going for the material wealth that was present there. This is very typical, I think, of how the enemy approaches many of us. He tries to pick us off when we're weak, when we're separated from the group sweeping in and taking hold of us. And so this was the circumstance. These, these Amalekites were not nice people. They were people that were going to plague Israel for about another thousand years of time. In fact, they weren't going to be put an end to until the time of Queen Esther. It was the Amalekite, Haman, who was actually at that time trying to eliminate all the Jews only to find the tables being flipped on him. So the Amalekites were characters throughout this time. They're fierce. They're not nice. They're takers of things. They attack in the back. They take out the stragglers, and they hit you when you're at your weakest. So he says, though, Moses, that he's going to stand on the hilltop with the staff of God in his hand, but he aligns uh, Joshua to do the fighting. So we see something happening here where there's a physical response to the battle. There's going to be a battle, and it's going to be physical, but there's also a spiritual response to the battle. And as followers of Christ, this is what we find ourselves engaged in. If all you're doing is praying and not doing anything about it, there can be a problem to that. If all you're doing is doing things about it and struggling in the physical but not praying and seeking the spiritual, there's also a disconnect with that. We see in here a model of doing some action but also of spiritually engaging as well. As the passage goes on, it says, So Joshua did, in verses 10 through 13, what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill, and as long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage, but whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage, and Moses' arms soon became so tired he could no longer hold them up. Jonathan Lowe, you're just sitting there, and you need to actually help me today, so would you slip up here real quickly? And Mr. Pizzo, uh, of the Italian uh, background, would you please also come on up real quickly for a second? I'm going to ask you guys to help me out for a second. And so he's holding up this thing until he could no longer hold them up. And then it says, So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. And as a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek. Now, here's what we're going to do is we're going to illustrate this for you very quickly. So what you've got is Moses. This is Moses, folks, okay? So, yes, welcome him. It's always good to have Moses in the house. So Moses at this point in time, is 80 years old, though. That's better. Okay. So Moses has the rod of 
God. And he's standing on the hill and he's raising this rod over his head and he's praying in their city for the people. I'm getting worried about you now. Okay, so he's praying in their city, but he's old and he's tired and the battle's stretching out. So Aaron and her, they run up here and they say, hey dude, you're a buddy. Here, here's a stone. Have a seat. And as he sits on the rock, he's still getting a little bit tired with that, and it's coming on down. So what they do is they come along, and they lift up his arms. Not the rod, but we lift up the arms. And as long as his arms are up, the battle's being won. As long as Moses is interceding, the battle is won. But if they start to drop, then what happens is the Israelites are losing. And so Aaron and her are critical this moment. We're lifting them up, holding them up, and as long as it's up, they're winning. Now, I want to go into this a little more depth, but right now I think you've got the illustration, and so could you please recognize my dear friends up here. Thank you, gentlemen. John and John, or as I refer to them as John John. So, here's one thing I want to highlight. Thanks, guys. The significance and importance of one person's prayer. The battle's being fought. And the struggle's going on, but there's something deeper that's happening. The Israelites couldn't let, at this point in time, was not to have God fight the battle for them. He wanted to develop them. This is all about growing them in faith. It's all about moving them from slavery to warriors, from grumblers to growers. And so in this one, they have to actually fight the physical battle, but it's not that alone. Moses is critical to this. And so as he's standing there with the rod up in, he's praying. As he's praying and interceding before God, they're winning. Never underestimate the power and impact of one person's prayer. Now, granted, it was Moses, okay? And I think, you know, John is a great Moses, okay? But any individual's prayer can make a profound difference in the struggle that's going on. For those of you that are intercessors, those of you that are praying people, realize the significance of this moment. He's 80 years old, though, so he's getting a little tired. So you, you, the guys come up there and realize that there's some connection between his worship and prayer and the winning of the battle. Maybe it just was all the people looked up there, saw him, and think, as long as he's up, we're good. But there seems to be something spiritual that was taking place. And so they come along and lift him up, lifting up the arms. When my dad was pastoring when I was a kid. Uh, he had a board that was made up of mostly his contemporaries, 40-somethings at that time. He had one guy on the, on, the, on, the, on the board that I remember to this day. And um, his name was Walters, Brother Walters. We called our own brother and sister in those days. A little weird, but it was what we did. So Brother Walters, um, to my young eyes at that time of 10 years of age, was positively ancient. He was way, at least over 60. Okay, so to me he was like almost dead. Um, and, and he provided counsel to my father. He lifted his arms up. Interestingly enough, when many of his contemporaries didn't, he was a man who understood this passage of Scripture. Ironically enough, as I was growing up in the years, I had no desire to be Moses. I had no desire to be in the pastoral realm. What I wanted to do is I wanted to be Aaron or her. <laughs> For two reasons. I wanted him to take the shots. Okay. And I wanted to be the one that came along. I wanted to be that important, influential leader within the church that would lift up the arms of that pastor or that person or that leader. It was a good-hearted intent. It was not what I ended up being called for. I read something recently that said that leadership is a misunderstood calling. Leaders may appear controlling because they are called to lead. They may come across as unapproachable because they set boundaries. They may be viewed as hard because they are called 
to defend. They may appear secretive because they must choose their words carefully. If they're not available 24-7, we say they are, quote, not there for us, unquote. If they can't make every event or respond to every email, tweet, and Facebook post, we label them as unavailable. Current reports say that up to 20,000, over 20,000 pastors leave the ministry every year. That there are thousands of churches, last year I heard of up to 3,000 churches a year in the U.S. that close down. I thank God that that does not describe who we are, but the pressures that are upon leaders in general is something that we should be conscious of. And for those of you that have employers and the owners of businesses, for those of you that that have a leader within your household and you can fight out whoever that is, for wherever that's at, there needs to be a consideration of to what degree we come along and lift up the arms of those leaders and encourage them. And it's not just leaders. I think there's a lot of us in general that struggle with different things, that find little snipes of attack that can tear us down. And it means so much when just a person comes alongside you. And if the cause is righteous, you have to determine that sometimes, but if it is, to stand with them and encourage them. So that's something I wanted to kind of place in your mind as part of the teaching of this, but it goes on in the 14th and 16th verse after they have the victory of this. The Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. Again, this is the first time we're introducing Joshua to the scene. He's going to be the next leader of Israel, and we see this as the beginning of the process of mentorship and shaping. He's brought into the council of Moses, and God directs him specifically to say, hey, read this to him. I want him to hear what's going on and be part of our councils. Later, he's the one who, who walks with Moses into uh, or up to Sinai as well. So there's some development. He says, I'll erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar there, and he named it Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. We've said how in this whole process, God is giving a revelation of his character. So he'd been known as God Almighty, all-powerful to the Jewish people. Then he became known as Yahweh, I am in the intimacy of the sharing of the personal name of God. And then Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals us. And now we're getting a new revelation of who God is. And this one is the Lord is my banner. And the banner is something that is used in a number of different ways. It can be an honoring thing, but it also uh, serves as a rallying point for troops and an identifier. In ancient conflicts, you'd hear about how the king raised his banner and everyone flocked to the banner for the fight and they'd rally around that banner as an identifier point, and as a point of, uh, of, of rallying and encouraging. Um, it had to do a lot with the identity. A certain unit would be called whatever unit it would be and that would be on their banner. That would be their insignia. And so something about a banner gives identity. It's a gathering point. It's a reminder maybe of what's taken in the past. And so here we have another revelation of who God is. He is my banner. He's the one who rallies us. He's the one who we identify with. He's the one who gives us victory. And this banner is a reminder of the different victories that he has given us. I've said a ways back about how there is this, to me, hysterical, that there is a Russian monastery in Harper Woods, Michigan. I just think that's funny. Of all the places for a monastery to be, and when they bought the property, it's in a residential section on a, a section on a residential street. And so 
they purchased all the property, like the four lots, this side, the four lots, this side, and the lots behind. But one house evidently would not sell out, I gather, because there's one house in the middle that doesn't belong to the monastery. And so the rest of this is all monastery. And they put on a fantastic meal, like two or three times a, a week, Russian food and all, just fantastic. So we'd gone with some friends, and as we're pulling up to this place, and, and I'm seeing this, this monastery all wrapped around the gardens and everything else like that, and then here's a single residential home. And along the road, they, the monastery had banners saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, space, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And I turned to my wife and I said, I guess Jesus is Lord everywhere but here. <laughs> everywhere right there. Is there a banner raised in our life that reminds us of God's victories, that identifies who we are and that we rally around? Is Jesus Lord everywhere in our life except one spot that we pull away and said, no, not here? Or is Jesus Lord all the way through? So this representation of banner, and it talks a little bit more about Amalek and how there's going to be a war, and the reality is that they're going to struggle with Israel for another thousand years until the time of Esther. Now, as we run along with this real quickly, um, I want to take you to this next section that follows, and then I want to come back to the section that we just did to show you something that's kind of hidden. This next section is um, the 18th chapter. And in this section, something kind of interesting, we see um, Moses' father-in-law shows up. And normally when in-laws show up, you know, you kind of aren't sure exactly how you want to treat them or welcome them. But in this case, there's a great relationship between uh, this father-in-law, Jethro, and, um, and Moses. And so as Jethro shows up, they sit down, they begin to exchange notes of what's happened. Uh, and in the process, Moses explains everything that's happened that God has done, and, and, and uh, Jethro appreciates all that. There seems to be something unique with Jethro and another character in Scripture called Melchizedek, that both of these individuals, even though they were not Jewish, um, were worshipers of God. So Jethro's just amazed at all this stuff. And um, after they're through hanging out, for a little bit. Um, the next morning, they rise up, and, uh, and, and, and Jethro's observing something, verses 13 and 14. Moses took his seat to hear the people's disputes against each other. Now, it's hard to imagine, I know, that people as godly as the Israelites, those who would be part of a church, would have disputes, but it does happen, I'm told, on rare occasions. For those that aren't tracking, that is a little bit of a sarcastic tone, okay, that I'm using at that moment, because disputes come up. They're part of human beings in history. So as this is happening, Moses is there to judge those. They waited before him morning till evening, it says. Long line waiting for Moses to resolve the situations. Moses' father-in-law saw that all he was doing. He says, what are you really accomplishing here? Why are you trying to do all this alone? Well, everyone stands around you from morning till evening. When I began in ministry, I used a phrase um, of shared ministry. That I believe all ministry is supposed to be shared. It's not supposed to be done by one individual alone. That everyone should have a, a part in the participation. And part of it's drawn from this. And so in the 17th verse, this is not good, Moses' father-in-law exclaimed. You're going to wear yourself out, the people too. This job's too heavy a burden for you. He says, this is, what you're doing isn't right. This isn't the way to handle things. And here's your father-in-law showing up, and the first thing he's doing, critiquing your leadership style. 
And um, normally this wouldn't go over well. But he presses on. He didn't just say that. He offers a new paradigm, a new style of leadership. In verses 19 21, now listen to me. Pay attention. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Let me give you a word of advice, and may God be with you. I like that. Let me give you a word of advice, and may God be with you. You should continue to be the person that people's represented before God, praying before God, seeking his face on their part and on their disputes and issues. You're to teach them God's decrees and give them instructions, show them how to conduct their lives. But select from all the people some capable, honest men who fear God and hate bribes. They're not influenced by others. Point them as leaders over groups of 100,000 uh, and, and beyond. Now, here's the interesting thing. Moses has heard from God. He's had the burning bush. He's got the personal name of God. He has parted waters with God's grace. He's brought water out of a rock. He has done all these various things and now has just won a great victory by the simple intercession of God um, through his lifting up of hands and and prayer. And now this father-in-law, who is a leader in his own right, but only of a small tribal group, and he's leading a million plus people and had all these incredible things, and he's now challenging his entire paradigm of leadership. How would you or I react to that? Excuse me, Dad. I'm a little busy here. I got people to see and things to do, and God's working through me. Here's an interesting thing about Moses. He was humble. He wasn't arrogantly sitting here saying, this is the only way to do it. It was the only way he knew how to do it. He hadn't seen any other models. He didn't know any other way, per se. He thought he was doing God's mandate in the moment. And when his father-in-law speaks to him, suddenly something hits him because in his humility, he receives it. And so it says in verse 24, an amazing passage of Scripture. Moses, God's buddy, miracle worker, everything else, listened to his father-in-law's advice and followed his suggestions. And so he chose people and put them over hundreds and thousands and fifties and all the different reasons, and they all handled what was being done there. And, um, and he only had to have little big things. And so his entire leadership, the paradigm has shifted, and he embraces it. There's a humility about that and a significance for any of us that are in any role anywhere to consider in that. Do you got that? Okay, these guys got it. How about y'all? Okay then I want to now take you back. And before we conclude this today, I'm going to run this back. Joshua. A battle's fought. A victory's won through action and through spiritual intercession. People come alongside Moses. Later he has this insight from his father-in-law, so he adjusts and they, the whole structure of Israel's changed and, and developed through this, so there's a progression going into play that's, that's important. But there's something that we missed here earlier. We saw the Lord as my banner. We understand that as a victory identifier rallying point. But Joshua, this is the first time he's introduced to us. Joshua is important as we see throughout the entire story. But here's something else about this moment that gives us an insight into God. At another portion in Scripture, I think it's in Numbers, we find out that um, Joshua was not his original name. His original name was Hoshea. Hoshea uh, basically means 
um, salvation or saved. Later on in the journey we see here, Moses changes Joshua's name or Hoshea to Joshua. And so in this point, they still they just reference him as Joshua. Hoshea means salvation or saves. But Joshua means the Lord or the Yahweh saves or the Lord is salvation. This intimate name of God, Yahweh, that, that he is salvation. There's a little bit of a change here. And here's what's even more important to this. The name Joshua in Greek is Jesus. This Joshua we see here is a precursor or a person who has similarities to Jesus Christ. He's a leader who rises up. He's one whose name and and very nature points to the salvation of God. He's going to fight battles on behalf of the people of Israel, and eventually he's going to lead them into the promised land. And in the same way, we have a person in the person of Jesus Christ who means and embodies salvation, who sacrifices himself and fights battles for us, and in his death and his resurrection, resurrection walks all of us who have faith in him into the promised land that is the eternity in heaven before God. All of that is kind of wrapped up in this moment. And so it's not just that the Lord is my banner, but there's new understanding that's hidden in here that says the Lord is also my salvation. He's also the one that rescues me. Now, let's take one little thing here before we, we wrap it up here a bit. The Amalekites. The Amalekites like to pick things off that are stragglers. They like to hit in the dark. They like to take what you have and possess it. They, they, they like to get people that are separated off. They pick on the weak ones. They catch you when you're not looking and they hit it from behind. Israel had troubles with this almost their entire existence. Each one of us have Amalekites in our lives. Each one of us have those things that sneak up on us and hit us when we're not ready, that, that seem to hinder us when we're fatigued, that want to steal from us. The God's joy and salvation, all that's part of us, all of us struggle with the Malachites. Whatever that is for you, I, I can't determine. In, in Saul's case, he, he was supposed to address them, this first king of Israel, and wipe them out totally, but he was more concerned about people than he was about God. And so he lets them survive and they continue to trouble the people of Israel. If we don't take them out entirely, there's a problem that continues to linger. These forces that come against us, these things that try to tear you down, this is part of the entire instruction that we see in this passage of Scripture. When those things take place... When that happens, what do you do? Do you run around like my dad would used to say, like a chicken with your head cut off? Do you, do you sit here and just fight harder? Or do you just go in a corner and just pray and don't do anything? Or do you take a lesson from this and realize there's certain actions and there's times to act? But along with it, there's times to pray. And if we're getting too fatigued, then not to give up on that, but maybe to sit down and continue to pray and intercede and pursue. That if you're given some input from a trusted source, a Jethro, that may mean a complete change in how you do things, that you listen to that and implement that into your life. And if you're really blessed, 
that maybe one, maybe two, will come along and lift up your arms in the midst of the struggle and tell the Amalekite that is in your life, whatever that is, is defeated and sent running. We are in a struggle, folks, right now. We hear all sorts of false things. We're not sure what's true anymore. We're dealing with less resources for more work. It seems hard to find God's presence in one way. You sit here and say, man, the children of Israel, they had it so easy. My gosh. Where's the pillar of fire? Okay, that's where we go. It's a lot harder for us to distinguish that. And in the midst of all the rest of the struggle, we find ourselves getting sniped from behind, pulled down as we straggle. God's word to you today is that he is your banner. He and his name is the place to rally and get identity, and you can have victory in him. But it goes deeper. He is your salvation. There are some battles he'll fight for you, and you don't have to do a thing. But there are some that you and I are going to have to deal with on our own. We can't always avoid conflict. And when we do that, to lean into him and not away from him. This morning we're going to take of communion. Ours is an open communion. You don't have to be a member of this church. You do need to be a follower of Christ. And that's a simple issue as far as we're concerned. Do you recognize your sin? Do you recognize your weaknesses? Do you recognize the need for repentance? And if so, do you realize it's not by works? It's not how much you give or how much you do that you'll ever achieve that. You can never be as good as God. But he has given us grace in the same way that the Passover in, in, uh, um, in Egypt was designed with the blood of a lamb, innocent lamb spread over the doorpost, over this wood and spread on wood so that the angel of death would pass over. In the same way, Christ comes as the Lamb of God, that with his sacrifice, his blood spread across the wood of that cross, that God looks on that and says, I forgive you and you and you. I, I, I give you grace based on his work. Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, the God who saves, the God who provides grace, the God who doesn't need us, but wants us all the same. As you go into this week, I want you to consider maybe that supervisor of yours at work, maybe the owner, maybe the leader that's there, Maybe it's the leader of your household. Um, maybe it's of some small group that you're part of and, and that you'd consider where they're at and that you begin to pray for them, that, that maybe you come alongside quietly, not physically, but spiritually, and lift their arms up. Um, realize this. As Moses was sitting there, Aaron and her were not whispering in his ear. They weren't sitting there going, well, I think you really ought to do this. And hey, those guys over there look a little, hey, lift your arm, come on, get higher, get higher. There was no conversation going on. They just quietly were present, lifting him up. Look for someone, maybe they're not a leader, maybe they're the person next to you, but they're in the midst of the struggle. Don't come along with a bunch of words, just come alongside. And so here's the instruction this week. Shut up and lift up. Just shut up. But lift up someone around you. There'll be prayer available at the atrium, at the prayer stations. We'll continue on with this series. We're about to hit one of the real significant high points of Israel's journey, literally, uh, next week. 
Father, I thank you for your grace and your provision. I thank you for those who are are lifter-ups of arms, Lord God, those who quietly just stand in the gap. Father, for all of us in the midst of the struggle, I pray that you would encourage and strengthen them, come against the Amalekites on our behalf, but also um, help us to, to deal with these conflicts properly. We commit these things into your hands in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Amen.